0: You can be seated. If you have your Bible, then please turn today to Romans chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of every pew. And that Bible it's on page 940. And we will be reading together today uh, from... Excuse me. I've got a mess of papers up here today. All right. There we go. We'll be reading together today from uh, Romans 2, verses 12 through 16 as we keep going through the book of Romans right now, and let's read that. Romans two twelve through 16, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Several years ago, um, when I first started in um, you know, vocational church ministry, uh, my first role in serving a church in that way was as a youth minister at a church in Kentucky. Um, and I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. And I learned a lot in that experience. And uh, the, the first, may, may not have been the first time we went to youth camp, but we, uh, we went to this camp. We uh, were about to, to load 30, 40 kids up on a bus and take them out and spend a week uh, having worship services and talking about the Bible. And I think it was the day before camp. I said, you know what, I really should have some rules for these kids. And so I sat down and I wrote out, I think I called it the Ten Commandments of Youth Camp. And so I had all these rules that were written there. um, And uh, I don't remember what all of the rules were now, but I do remember that these Ten Commandments of Youth Camp were not well received. I still think they were pretty good rules, but... One in particular that I, I remember was that I wrote down the rule, um, women, or women and girls should not have s- uh, sleeveless shirts. And I didn't want to just say spaghetti straps because that's hard to define. And of course, you know, in youth groups, you're always trying to, to battle against immodesty and all this kind of stuff. But I remember when I read that, I looked at, at one of the ladies who had come along uh, to help out with youth camp, and there she was standing there with a sleeveless shirt. And I, all of a sudden I thought, oh no, what, what have I gotten myself into at this point? I did not tell these rules in advance, and uh, and, and what you know what I did is I just, I soured everybody. <laughs> and they said, well, why didn't you tell us in advance? Well, I learned my lesson, and the next time that we went off on a trip like that, what I did instead is I said okay, I'm going to write up these rules in advance, and as part of signing up for camp, the kid and their parents both have to sign that they have read these rules. And guess what? Nobody objected to any rule. Nobody minded. Everybody followed them. Things went really, really smoothly. That's not to say that they that's necessarily just because of my great rules or something like that. But there is a difference between showing up to something and finding out that there are impossible rules, uh, and knowing the rules in advance. Now the point of the passage that is here is that God has already given the rules in advance by which he will judge, by which he will condemn those who will be condemned. Now we would want to come to God, or I, I guess I say we, sinful, lost unbelieving human beings would want to come to God and say but we didn't know or but God that's not fair or you didn't tell us and what's happening here in these verses is that God is taking away all of those excuses for every human being everywhere the potential excuse but I did not know and God is going to say well everyone did know the the framework of the passage that we're in if you've been With us as we've been going through Romans then you've heard some of these things before and I'll just remind you and if you haven't then I'll just tell you we're in the smack dab middle of a great big section of Romans where God is telling us in the words on these pages that every single human being is lost apart from the gospel apart from faith in Jesus Christ that there is no one who can stand as righteous before God apart from believing in Jesus. That section comes starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, and it runs all the way through chapter 20, or excuse me, chapter, verse 20 of chapter 3. So we're right in the middle of it. And so, as, as he has said in the theme verse of Romans, which is Romans one seventeen: for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's saying you can receive what he calls in, later in the book, the free gift of God's righteousness by faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God is revealed. Those who have faith in Jesus are under the righteousness of God. But the next verse is, But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this whole section is showing that prior to coming to faith in Christ, every human being is in that status, not of being under the righteousness of God, not of being saved by faith in Jesus, but of being under the wrath of God. So I want to tell you that up front because some would take these verses out of context to say, well, this verse sounds like it's saying that there are going to be people on the day of judgment who will go to heaven on the basis of their works but the whole point of this whole section is to say no there is no one who does that he it's emphasized when you get to to chapter three verse nine uh it says we have already charged that all both jews and greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one do you hear that He's telling us, if you're going to say, well, maybe I'll be saved by my works on the day when I stand in the judgment seat of God, he says, no, you won't. No, you won't. If you're depending on your works, you will be found short. Not just short, but you'll be completely embarrassed on that day and ashamed. Don't do that. He's already told you, no one will be justified by their works. But what he's telling us here is that everyone already has the standard that they need for judgment. Nobody's going to be able to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, but I didn't know. That's what he's going to get across to us here. Now in, in your outline on the back of your bulletin, I've got point one, point two, point three. And sometimes after I write that out, I want to change it a little bit. So I'm going to add a point zero before point one if that's all right with you guys. You can write that in there if you want to. So point zero, we're going to look at verse 12, and we're going to see that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. One more thing just to tell you about the framework and the, the, the way that this whole thing is, this passage is structured. If you don't have your Bible open, you've got to open your Bible and see this, okay? Um, Verse 12 is connected to verse 16. And in the King James Version, there's actually a parenthesis that starts at the beginning of verse 13 and closes at the the end of verse 15. See, you have no idea what I'm talking about if you don't have your Bible open right now. So you need to have your Bible open every time you come to church, but right now, maybe you'll see why but so so there and I think that the King James version got that right in putting those parentheses right there now since then there's been debate are those parentheses right should there be parentheses should they go there should they go somewhere else and so modern versions usually just take the parentheses out but I think the King James version got that right I think that the the flow of thought naturally goes from verse 12 to verse 16 and then there is commentary in the middle of that And you may say well that sounds weird well if you've read the letters of Paul in the New Testament, he does this all the time. It's just how Paul writes. Uh, it doesn't seem weird to those who have read a lot of Paul's writings by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. So just to know that, but what does verse 12 get at? Verse 12 gets at this idea that the wages of sin is death. Now that's said explicitly. That is a quote from later in the book, Romans six twenty-three. The wages of sin is death. But here's how he explains it here. All who have sinned without the law. Well, who is that? Who is it that is without the law? It's those who don't have the written law of God. Now, he's referring here in this whole section, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles both needing to come to faith in Jesus. And one of the distinguishing marks of the Jewish people throughout history is is that God came to them and gave them in written form his law that the rest of the nations didn't have in that form. And that was a mercy that God showed toward that nation. That, That was one of the evidences that God had chosen this nation to be his people and to be the people through whom he would send us the Savior, Jesus Christ. But there are those who would say, well, because we have the law, we're better off, and because they don't have the law, they're worse off. Well, in a way, yes, but does that save anyone? No. And then on the other hand, there's this thinking, well, what about the people out there who don't have any of that message? What, what about the, the, the man on the island, as people always call this, this man, the man on the island out there who has never heard anything, never heard the name of Jesus never read the Ten Commandments, never had anybody come and mention anything at all about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to him. What about that man? Well, you know what this says right here? All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Is it the being without the law that makes someone perish? No, it's the sin. It's the sin that makes someone perish. It says right here that no one is going to be saved on the excuse, I never heard. And there are people who never hear and are lost. And some would look at that and would say, well, that that means that God is unjust. That God is not fair. I blame God if that's the truth. Or I reject your system if it it has a kind of God who would would let someone who never heard perish. What does perish mean? Well, it's the opposite of eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. If you don't believe upon Christ, you perish in your sins. If you say, well, that's not fair of God, well, there's a problem then with how you view God and how you view what's fair. Do you know what would be fair? If we're demanding God be fair, we'd all be doomed. The the big question is not, why does God let some people perish? The big question is, why does God save any sinners? And yet he does, and he does it in Christ. But... On the day of judgment, I never heard the law, I never heard the Bible, I never heard the gospel. It's not going to be an excuse that prevents any sinner from perishing. Now, is there such a thing as the man on the island out there who did not sin? No, <laughs> absolutely not. That is what Romans 1, verses 18 through 32 is all about. There, that man does not exist The righteous pagan, as he's sometimes called, there is no such thing. As it's put later in, in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. That's one of those places where all means all. Right? Everybody has sinned. And all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Just a practical thing there. If that breaks your heart, well, let me put it another way. If that does not break your heart, there's something wrong with you. If you can think of people perishing around the world without having ever heard of Christ, and it doesn't affect you emotionally, then you need to sit down and pray that it would. Because that, there ought to be a burden on our hearts for the people who have never heard. There was a burden on Paul's heart for the people who, who had never heard. He's going to say in, in chapter 15 of this letter that his aim is to go and to preach Christ where his name has not been named. And if you have that burden, you know what you need to do is you need to become an enthusiastic supporter of missions. Of missions. You, you, you may not be one who ends up going on the field to actually go and to tell an unreached tribe about Christ. But did you know that we literally have two, two missionaries that we specifically support through our missions fund here. And by the way, if you give to missions, not a penny of that goes to our budget for this church. It all goes to these missions organizations and missionaries. But, but two missionaries specifically who, who are going to tell these people that we're talking about, who will perish in their sins apart from having hurt, that's who we call the C family, headed to South Asia, and we can't say what country right now. I hope that one day it will open up to the point where we can. And then the Jebello family in Papua New Guinea, who is going into the interior of Papua New Guinea, to Mocha and these other unreached villages where Christ has never been named, and preaching Christ and establishing churches is their aim. So, so you can give to support those things. You can pray for those who have never heard. You can pray. Uh, Partly, we have our prayer list. And uh, on a regular basis on our prayer list, we put unreached people groups on there. Unreached people groups means uh, people of tribes and tongues and nations. Uh, It's usually a, a specific group of people in a particular place who speak the same language and have a culture together. But where these people are unreached with the gospel, you can pray for them on our prayer list. If you want to pray for them more regularly... You can go to joshuaproject.net and you can sign up to get daily emails where every single day you can learn about a new unreached tribe. What's going on with them? What have been the efforts to reach this tribe with the gospel? How do they need to be prayed for? And you can pray for them. And it may even be, listen to this, it may even be that you would be called by God to be one of those who would go and preach the gospel to those who have never heard in places around the world. Is it true that there are people in New Jersey who have never heard? Yes, that's true. So preach the gospel here, too. Don't think to yourself that you're going to actually share the gospel when you go overseas if you don't do it here. Yes, you need to tell people here the gospel, but you know what? There are places in the world, let me put it this way, if somebody in New Jersey wants to hear about Christ, they can walk right in here. It's not that hard to hear about Christ here. There are places in the world where that's just not the case. Where there are people who would want to know but can't. And maybe the Lord would call you to go and to be one of those people who would go and be a missionary. Maybe the Lord would call you to bless your children in going and taking your grandchildren with them overseas. So that you might not see them more than every couple of years. Because you actually care about people who would not hear the gospel except that they would go. So that's a little bit of a tangent, a little bit of an aside, but I think it's an important one. That when we see the truth that those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, we need to affirm that theological truth, but it also needs to, to move us to be those who would send the gospel and actually care about them and actually tell those who have never heard. But then he goes on. He says, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now when he says judged by the law, he doesn't mean, well, he's going to weigh the good works of the law versus the bad works of the law and see how they come out. No, he's saying (laughs) the wages of sin is death. And those who have the written word of God in front of them, being preached, being proclaimed, being read, those who have that will be judged. And the word judged there is not the "judge righteous word, that is the condemned kind of judge word. I think the reason it uses two different words there, perish on the one hand and judged on the other hand, is I think he's showing that there is an even stricter, harsher penalty and judgment for those who have heard and yet have not come to Christ. He could say this about those who had only heard the Old Testament, on the one hand, because he's speaking here of the Jewish people who had the law of God read in their synagogues every Sabbath. He's speaking of that, and do you know what Jesus said about that? Jesus did not come along and say, but it never mentions my name, so you're okay. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. He said said to, to those Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that speak of me. He's saying right here that those who have even the Old Testament only in front of them, if they were in tune with the Spirit of God to believe the words that are there, they would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God who has come. And do you know that we, you know what we have? You have the Old Testament and the New Testament right in front of you. You have it on your phone. You have it on your nightstand. You have it in your church. You have it preached to you every week. And do you think that you're going to stand before God one day and be declared righteous because you heard so much of the Bible and nodded when you heard it? What it says here is it's giving a harsher standard of judgment. Those who sin without the law will perish without the law, but those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. There's not a setting out here of a path of salvation by the law. It's a harsher judgment for those who reject Christ with an even greater light of having had the written word of God, the law, in front of them. So that's point zero The wages of sin is death. And so you can move on to number one now, that knowing the Bible is no substitute for obedience. Knowing the Bible is no substitute for obedience. Look at verse 13. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. This carries on a little bit from what we're talking about. And you would come to that and you would say, some would look at this and say, well, will people who do do the law be justified? Are there going to be people who stand right with God on the day of judgment because they did the law? If you think that, then you don't understand what it means to do the law. Do you know what it means to do the law? It means to do the whole thing in perfection without having broken any of it. Do you know what you call somebody who obeys most of the laws but breaks some of them? A criminal. If you are trying to come before God and to be justified on that day, to be counted as right because you did good things or because you obeyed the rules that you read in the Bible, well, you will be found to be disobedient. If you doubt that, let me tell you the way that Jesus summarized the law of God. Someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the first and greatest commandment of God's law? And he said, here it is. It's you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Some hear that and they say, wow, I'm off the hook. Jesus said, I don't have to obey any rules. All I have to do is love God. You, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. I, I've got to confess something to you guys. As I was sitting in Sunday school this morning, as Evan prayed his opening prayer and gave an excellent Sunday school lesson this morning, but as he I prayed the opening prayer, toward the end of the prayer, I realized that I wasn't praying. I realized that in the middle of Evan's prayer for us to hear and to receive the word of God, that my mind had wandered off into the logistics of running church this morning. And in that moment, I realized, you know what? If I'm going to be judged by the rule of you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, that right there, that would be one of the secrets of men that would be brought forward to condemn me at the throne of judgment. You cannot perfectly obey. If you're trying to perfectly obey, then you're operating by what we call the covenant of works. The covenant of works is what was set up in the Garden of Eden, where God gave mankind a standard of perfect obedience and said, if you do this, you will live. It was very simple at that time. The rule was you may eat of any tree of the garden, but you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may eat of the tree next to it, the tree of life, and live forever. But if you eat of this tree and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And do you know what man did? Did mankind live by perfect obedience to God? No, even when perfect obedience was a very simple, just don't eat from this one tree. We fell. We sinned. And I say we, I mean we. You and me, we fell in Adam. We fell into sin and we are lawbreakers. There's other places in the Bible where it talks about this covenant of works that theoretically, if you could perfectly obey, you'd be saved. Paul quotes this in Galatians 3.12, The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. If you do the law of God perfectly, sure you'll live. Well, I mean, it says right here, the doers of the law will be justified. And I think in theory... It is saying that if someone did the law, they would be justified. But do you know who does the law? No one. There is none righteous. There is none who does good, not even one, except the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one who has done the law perfectly, who has fulfilled every bit of it, carried it out perfectly, has a perfect righteousness in his life, and that is Jesus God the Son who came in our place lived for us and then even though he lived perfectly, he also died for us. He took the curse of sin for us on the cross and he rose from the dead and he secured eternal life for all who would believe in him. But do you know what happens if, in this life if we're, if we're trying to live by that covenant of works? Well, we'll be condemned. Galatians 5.3 says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, meaning trying to add to the salvation of Jesus by our own works. If you try to do that, it says he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you are going to try to be right with God in any part through your own works, then you are under obligation to be completely perfect in 100% of all your works. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. You know how we need to be saved? Instead of by that covenant of works, is by what we call the covenant of grace. That's just a way of saying that since we could not work our way into right standing with God, that God gives us grace. And you know how he does it? He does it by a Redeemer. The same Redeemer that was preached right after the first sin of humankind in Genesis 3.15. The one who would be the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent this one whose name is Jesus you need to be saved by the grace of God you cannot be saved by works you need grace here's what it says in Ephesians 2 8 through 10 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast no one may boast If there was going to be people on that last day who were justified by works, they could boast about it. And God won't let that happen. He won't let it happen. God is the one who gets the glory alone. But what it says, looking again here at this verse, Romans 2, verse 14, verse 13, I mean, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I want you to know two things about that. One is what I just told you, that there is no such thing as someone who will be justified by doing the law. Because that's the whole point of chapter 2 and half of chapter 3. There is no one who will be justified that way. And I also want you to hear this. Those of you who have already been justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from your works. Those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ today. We are also called to be doers of the law and not hearers only. Not because we think we're going to be justified by that. Not because we, can think, we think we can add to the finished work of Jesus. But because if you have been brought to faith in Christ, that you love God and you want to walk in his ways. Right after Ephesians 2 says that you can't be saved as a result of works, it says, for we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even the good works that you do, Christian, they're not your good works. They're good works that God prepared beforehand. He just set them in front of you to walk in them. You are his workmanship. You are a new creation created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so there is a call in this verse that's connected with what's said elsewhere in Scripture, that we are not to be hearers only of the word of God, but also to be doers. Here's the way that it's put in James 1. This is, many of your minds probably have already gone to James 1 right now. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once." Forgets and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The point in Romans 2 is you cannot be justified by doing. But it also connects us to the point of James 1, which is, as someone who is justified by faith, be a doer of the word of God. Don't be a hearer only. The illustration that's given there in James 1 is that if you hear the Word of God, or you could even say read the Word of God, it's much more common back then to hear it than to read it because not many people could read. But if you you are in the Word of God, you hear the Word of God, you read the Word of God, and you, you are convicted and you say, oh, I see what I'm like, it is exposing me, and then you go away and don't do what it says. It says you're like someone who gets up in the morning, looks at their face, sees how messed up their hair is, sees how shiny their nose is, all the different things that you could see, the the flaws and the zits and everything. And you say, boy, that's bad. And then you just walk off and don't do anything about it. I've heard before, if the barn needs painting. But this says, that's silly. We're to come to the word of God and not just say, boy, that gut punched me, and that's it, and that's the end. And then you don't go and do anything about what it punched you in the gut about. Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Can you imagine a mechanic who knows all of his manuals but never gets around to fixing his own car? Or a doctor who can prescribe all the right medicines to take care of everybody's illnesses but won't take them for his own sickness? Or can you imagine a chef who has hundreds of delicious recipes memorized but won't cook anything for his family? Maybe some of those people are real that I'm describing. I don't know. But can you imagine a professing Christian who has an extensive knowledge of the Bible and won't obey it himself? Of course we can imagine that because it's a sad reality that that really happens. Somebody who professes Christ knows so, so much about the Bible and yet won't do it. There there are those who listen to all the best sermons by all the best preachers from all over the world, because you can get those on the internet now, but they won't go next door and make peace with their neighbor. There are those who, who can offer sound biblical critiques of every aspect of the life of their church, but they won't serve unless maybe they get asked to teach. There, there are those who can tell you in detail about all the theological controversies of church history, but then go home and treat their wives like dirt. There are those who can tell you the traditional Reformed understanding from the Westminster Larger Catechism of all six petitions of the Lord's Prayer, but they won't gather together to pray with their brothers in Christ. What Robert Haldane, the 18th century, uh, excuse me, 18th century uh, commentator on Romans, said. He said, "The law has not been given as a matter of curiosity or contemplation as a philosophical science, but to be obeyed. And the greatest outrage against the law and the legislator—that's God—is to hear it and not to take heed and to practice it. If you think to yourself, well, I I know that I have these areas of my life that I need to deal with. But, because I'm saved by faith alone, God will be pleased that I know this set of theological truths instead of dealing with what I need to know in my life. God would have you to deal with what you know you need to deal with in your life. God would have you to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only you may be one of the greatest hearers of the word that you have ever met because you know so much. But do you know what, do you know what 1 Corinthians 8.2 says? It says, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought. But whoever loves God has been known by God. Don't don't practice, I've heard it called substitute godliness. I don't have to be godly because I can substitute godliness with knowledge. Don't set yourself up to be judged on that standard. Don't do that. Come to Christ, love Christ, go to God, confess your sin to him. Maybe the reason that you're doing that, that you're trying to substitute obedience with knowledge, is because you think that you can never be cleansed of your sin. That He's promised you that if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He will help you. He is the Spirit who walks with you. He says... Do not gratify the desires of the flesh, but walk by the Spirit. Whoever walks by the Spirit does not desire, gratify the desires of the flesh. He, I'm giving this to you as an encouragement. Whatever reason that you have not to be obedient to what God says in his word, he will take away every excuse and he will give you grace and he will hold your hand and he will be with you by the Holy Spirit who is called our helper, our advocate. And we've got to have that humility and that love for God, not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. But again, the point in Romans is you still can't be justified by doing the word. Even as we are called to do it, even as we are called to obey God in every way, you will not stand in the judgment on the basis of your obedience you can only stand on the basis of Christ. And we'll get to that in a second. But I want to talk now about those who would use not knowing the Bible as an excuse for disobeying God. So what we were just talking about was those who would use knowing the Bible as a substitute for obeying God. But now he gets to those who would use not knowing it as an excuse. Down in verse 15 it says, they show. Or see verse, verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You know what we have here is we have a teaching that there is something that is known by every person. You grow in wisdom and in stature as as kids grow up. This becomes a little clearer as they grow and they understand it a little better. But everybody knows that we have a sense built into us of right and wrong. It's called our conscience. And what it says in verse 14 is that there is something of what the law requires. It says in verse 15 that there is a work of the law that is written on their hearts. That there's a conscience that bears witness and accuses or even excuses human beings. This is one of the ways that everybody knows that God exists. I've talked about this a couple of times as we've gone through the previous verses in Romans, so I'm not going to spend a long time on it. I talked most about it when we were on Romans chapter 1, verse 32, where it says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. He said right there, and he's saying the same thing here in different words, that everybody everywhere has a sense that God has given them already of what is right and what is wrong before God. The response of mankind to that conscience, to that sense of right and wrong, is not to perfectly obey God, it's to rebel against it. Not as much as is humanly thinkably possible, or else we wouldn't be able to exist in the world at all. Our building would be on fire right now. But what we, would, what we have instead is, is that there is a rebellion against it. There is not a being saved by conscience, there's a rebellion against it. Now that, that writing of the law on the heart, it's not perfect. Well, let me put it this way, what God did is perfect, what sin does twists it. So you can't go to every person and say, well, the Bible says that God gave you a conscience, so just follow your conscience and you'll be okay. Well, the conscience is written on a sinful heart of stone that is twisted and marred by sin and wrinkled up and hard to read. And so there are flaws in the human conscience because of that. There are people who will say things like love is love is love is love and say that with great, great sincerity of their own conscience. But then you say, well, what about love between a grown man and a little kid? And they say, well, that's not love. They're right. They have a conscience. It's twisted, but it's still there. My, my point is this. There, there are some who would, who would go around the world and say, well, look, in this culture this is right and this is wrong. In this culture this is right and this is wrong. It's all relative. Guys, it's not relative. It's the moral law of God. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's given in human consciences. This is why anybody that you talk to, believer, unbeliever, member of some other religion, there are, there's something about the Ten Commandments that resonates with everybody. Especially the last six of them. The first four are a little bit too explicitly about worshiping the God that people don't want to worship for them to resonate as much. But everybody knows, oh yeah, don't murder, that's a good rule. Don't steal, don't lie, that's a good rule, that's a good rule. The reason is because God wrote it on hearts. This is not the same kind of writing the law on the heart as you see in Jeremiah 31. There is a different kind of writing the law on the heart that comes when someone is born again when someone's heart of stone is taken away and they are given a heart of flesh. That kind of writing on the heart is the kind where we come to know and to love God. This kind is the kind where you know the work of the law. When you come to faith in Christ, by the Spirit you have the law written on your hearts in such a way that He can say, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest they love God. The way Martin Luther put it is that the knowledge of the work is written, it's on the lost human's heart, that is the law that is written in letters concerning the works that have to be done, but not the grace to fulfill the law. So, all that to say that what I think is Paul's big point about this verse, these two verses, verses 14 and 15, you're not off the hook because you never heard the law. We already talked about that from verse 12, but he's just driving it home. And one of the reasons you're not off the hook is because you already had the rules. You had rules written on your heart, in your conscience. Now, does anybody become saved by following their conscience? I already said no, but do you know what else? Nobody follows their conscience. Sometimes you do. Here's what he gets at, verse Verse 15. Sometimes their thoughts even excuse them. Well, that feels nice, right? I obeyed my conscience there. I feel pretty good about that. I helped that person. I I had a tug on my heart. I should help that person, and I did. I feel pretty good about that. That's your thoughts and your conscience excusing you. But do you know what else the thoughts of the conscience do? Accuse you. Even if you say, well, I just have my conscience as my guide, you don't even obey your conscience. You know there is no set of rules that you have ever been under that you have perfectly obeyed. You've not perfectly obeyed the law of God and the Ten Commandments. You, you have not perfectly obeyed government law. It's possible that there's even somebody sitting in this room right now who broke the law in their automobile this morning. You, you, you don't even obey 100% or sometimes even close to 100%, your own conscience. Nobody's going to get off the hook by that. It's only going to accuse us and be evidence on the day of judgment for those who are lost. I say us, I'm talking about those who are outside of Christ. Even the conscience will be evidence against them on that day. But here is the good news. Here is God's standard for the final judgment. Verse 16, which is connected very closely to verse 12, with a parenthesis in the middle, it says, On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You know what God's going to do on that day of judgment, that day that we've already talked about, because he spoke of that a few verses ago, that there is a day of judgment coming, when all flesh will stand before God. Not the private kind of judgment that comes at death, where People go either to heaven or hell, but no one on earth knows and sees what has happened at that point. But this is the public judgment of the living and the dead, where the dead are brought up out of their graves. And those who are in Christ will be declared righteous and sent into the joy of their master. And those who are outside of Christ will be declared wicked and will be thrown into the lake of fire, and everyone will see publicly forever and ever. That's the day of judgment that we're talking about. On that day when, verse 16, according to my gospel, God judges. According to my gospel. And he says, he will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God is going to judge the secrets. He's not going to just judge the obvious and public things. He's going to judge the things that people thought that they got away with. That they thought that it would never get brought up ever again. That they thought that they had escaped the consequences for. Because no one knew that they had done it. God will bring it in the open and will judge it. God will judge every shameful act. God will judge every careless word. Even the ones spoken in secret. God will judge every ugly thought that no human being ever knew that you had he will bring out the secrets of men and what is going to be the standard of judgment i said this verse is good news it doesn't sound that way yet does it what's the standard of judgment he says he will judge it according to my gospel you hear that he says he will judge it according to my gospel you know what is the ultimate obedience that brings about eternal life? It's not obedience to the law. It is not works. It's what Paul said back in Romans 1.5. The obedience of faith. It is the obedience of faith. It is not a work. It is coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That is when you are transferred from wrath to righteousness is by the gospel of Jesus the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek he said back in 116 it is by this gospel that he will judge one of the ways that that's brought out and pictured in revelation uh, verse revelation 21 is, as Jesus is at this judgment on the great white throne who is it that are cast into the lake of fire he says it's those who whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, it's those who have come to the obedience of faith, of faith in Jesus Christ, of Paul's gospel, which earlier in Romans 1.1 he called God's gospel. When Paul says, my gospel, he's not saying here, you invent your own gospel and you're saved by it. He's saying, this is the one gospel The one that I got directly from the Lord Jesus. The gospel that if anyone preaches to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. Even if an angel from heaven should come and preach to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. He says, by this gospel, every human being will be judged. And it's those who are in the Lamb's book of life, those who are of faith in Jesus, who will stand righteous before the judge. And who is the judge? Well, he says, the judge is Christ Jesus verse 16 he will judge god judges the secrets of men by christ jesus back in john 5 jesus says that the father has given all judgment to the son when we stand before god at judgment it will be jesus our savior who is judging us it's an amazing thing for us who know christ to know that when we stand as it says we will In 2 Corinthians 5, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that our judge is the very one who will be sitting there with holes in his hand and his side and his feet from where he already paid the penalty for our sins. He's the one who will judge us. He's the one who knows you, believer. You don't have to worry on that day that you're going to come before him And he won't know you. And because of that one secret that the pastor just made me think about, that maybe I'll be cast into the lake of fire. Even when he brings out those secret things for you, it's just going to be to show the glory of his grace in forgiving them by the blood of the cross. And when he brings out your good works for for reward, it won't be because it's adding to the finished work of Christ. It's going to be because he worked those things in you. As it says in Philippians, it's God who works in us for his good pleasure. All of it for believers, it's going to be just a time of joy. Even when we see our sins brought out, we're going to just fall before the throne of God. And thank God what mercy and grace has been shown to me in that Jesus, my righteousness, has borne the penalty for my sin. But for those who come before God on that judgment day, and they have for themselves the standard of the law, God, I knew your law really well, and I've tried to keep it. We'll see how I do at the judgment seat. It's going to be a day of the beginning of eternal torment. And that goes also for those who did not have the law, but thought, I think I'm a pretty good person and the basis for my thinking that is my own sense of right and wrong, my own conscience. And it's going to be brought out into public that day that they did not even obey their own conscience. That they who sinned without the law will perish and all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You know what you need to do is you need to know Christ. You need to know the judge who is the redeemer, who is the savior before you stand before him. And if you come to faith in Jesus, if you bow your knee to Jesus now, then you will rejoice in glory with him forever and ever. But if you won't, regardless of what a great person you consider yourself to be, what a great law keeper you consider yourself to be, what a religious person you consider yourself to be, if you will not come to repentant faith in this Savior, Your knee will bow on that day, but not because you chose to, but because he will break it, and he'll cast you into the lake of fire. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and have grace and salvation that you don't deserve. Let's pray. God, I pray that everybody who is here would stand in the day of judgment. We have it offered to us right now, the the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we have earned nothing for ourselves except the wages of sin, which is death, but you freely offer life in Christ. You will judge by the gospel. Christ, our Redeemer, will be our judge. Lord, let us stand in worship and joy in that day of judgment. Lord, where where there are those who are convicted of their sin, I pray that you would grant forgiveness by faith in Christ. I pray that you would grant cleansing. God, where there are those who are not convicted of their sins, maybe even after this kind of a sermon, would still say, Boy, I sure am glad somebody else heard that sermon. God, I pray that you'd grant us not to be hearers of the law only, but doers out of love for our Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.